Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. E3 succumbs to the age of the influencer. What you need to know. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we have a bit of a doozy of a story, especially if you're interested in the internal machinations of the video game industry. As Game Daily Biz, which you know we've talked about at some length on virtual legality is a wonderful resource for those of you that are interested in the kinds of topics that we discuss on this channel. And Mike Futter have put out an exclusive article clearly based on yet another leak of a different kind of data from the ESA, which is the Video Game Industries Trade Association, uh, in respect of what their plans are for the future of the Electronic Entertainment Expo, E3, which happens every year in June uh, in Los Angeles. And if you're not familiar with the industry, if you're not familiar with E3, E3 has been the crown jewel conference for celebrating the video game industry, for publishers to show what they're doing, for developers to show off their new technology, and for the media to get all of their articles and understanding for what the next year or 18 months or two years or five years, depending on which publisher you're talking about, has in store for video games and for the industry for a long, long time. But it has taken various different shapes as the industry has morphed and changed, primarily around the internet. Uh, with the internet, there's been a number of different changes to E3. Back when I started really watching the industry, when I was a, quite a bit younger, it was much more of a business presentation, much more what you would expect a CEO to present to the board of directors. It would have 20-minute segments on various market demographics and how the core hardware sales were doing in geography X versus geography Y, bar graphs, pie charts, everything else that you could want. And that slowly went away until it became kind of a Las Vegas-esque carnival of video games with Call of Duty people jumping in through the skylights and bungee cording down or whatever else they were doing at E3 with helicopters and cars and everything else before kind of reducing in size, having a couple of bad years, and really figuring out what it's about. Uh, and as we'll see in this article and in the pitch deck that they at Game Daily Biz and Mike have uh, thankfully put up for us to digest entirely, they are still figuring things out. Uh, right now, we are in an era where Sony didn't go to the latest E3, where Nintendo primarily makes its major announcements by video, which they can get thousands and thousands of eyeballs on with basically announcement the day before that something is coming out. And you are seeing these publishers and developers really figure out that it maybe doesn't make sense to all congregate in Los Angeles to have this big show, to have these press conferences, to pay for theaters and histrionics and everything else that goes along with it. Now, I still think there's value there. I still think there's value to having a moment in time where you can get the mainstream media to at least focus on your multi-billion dollar industry uh, when it's maybe less inclined to do so. But as we move further and further into this kind of direct media approach, it seems like E3 is still trying to figure itself out. And what we're about to see is what their plans were uh, as of the middle of last month, 
Uh, and we'll see that they are not at all concrete and they're still trying to figure out a new look for what this convention is going to be. And I'm going to tell you, if you're watching Virtual Legality, if you're a fan of this channel or a fan of mine, I strongly suspect that a number of you are not going to be thrilled with what we're about to talk about, what E3 is intending to look like from the ESA. But if you are concerned about this, know this. It's still got months before these plans come to fruition. And then even then, the ESA and E3 haven't necessarily stuck to their guns on major changes that they've made to the format. So even if it's a bad year in 2020, if it's something that you don't like, don't assume that this is the future forever and ever. Uh, but it, it might be. Uh, or it might be a, a state of uh, the universe in which ESA doesn't have an E3 that exists in whatever format you liked best over the last 20 years at all. So without further ado, let's take a look at this article. This is by Mike Flutter. Uh, it says, E3 2020 pitch proposes overhaul with cutainment, new floor plan, and industry-only day. The ESA is hoping to turn E3 into a Gamescom-like festival. Gamescom being the European conference that was recently just uh, held, I believe, in Germany uh, last month or earlier this month where everybody gets together and it's a fan event. There's there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are there to celebrate kind of the culture of games. If you're familiar, it's probably a little bit more similar to what we currently have as kind of the PAX uh, set up here, which is all about fans and, and celebrating gaming rather than supposedly trying to coordinate media and developer contacts as E3 was originally intended to do. It says the ESA is trying to rebrand E3 as a fan media and influencer festival for next year's event. In a pitch deck intended for the lobbying group's members, last updated August 16, 2019, the ESA says it has plans to adapt its offerings in response to feedback gathered from publishers. As part of its overhaul, the group proposes leaning into influencers and paid celebrity deals with talent representation agencies like UTA and CAA. I want to take a step back here, and we're going to get to it later in the article because Mike rightly brings it up, uh, but... It's worth noting that this is another instance where the ESA has apparently lost track of and otherwise allowed to have been leaked significant confidential proprietary information of their organization. We did a video earlier this year about the fact that they had leaked all of the media information for last year, uh, the year before, other years randomly in the past on their own website that just allowed people to go and get registered mailing addresses cell phone numbers and things like that. And so there has been an open question about whether the ESA can properly protect people's data. And what you're seeing right now is, at least internally, they don't have the capacity to even protect their own data, which just from a kind of meta contextual perspective should give everyone pause that this pitch deck has made its way into the hands of Game Daily Biz when clearly, as we will see here, this is not intended for public consumption. And we're going to talk about this is the way that corporations talk about what they're trying to achieve, uh, about how trade associations talk about what they're trying to achieve. And it maybe isn't as nefarious as it sounds. However, it definitely isn't designed to actually uh, be met by the eyes of the customers that they are trying to, uh, let's say, persuade with whatever, whatever commercial or advertising procedures that they are attempting to use. Uh, continuing with the article, I've highlighted a few things here. I'm going to link this in the description to the video because I do think it's worth giving Game Daily Biz the click. Uh, they've got a lot of good analysis here. They've got a lot of interesting thoughts on what the pitch deck actually shows. Uh, but they say that the attractions that they intend to change, the ESA intends to bring to e, uh, the E3, is going to require a massive change to the E3 floor. And you see here on the pitch deck that they've got this kind of concept for the West Hall that will have what they call experiences which would presumably be influencer-based uh, 
kind of parties or celebrations or lounges uh, that relate solely to kind of celebrating games, a much more fan-oriented approach rather than what we have seen from E3 in the past with still kind of the existing infrastructure, uh, as we see in this next picture, existing for the publishers that want to show up still. Uh, the, The article continues, the lobbying group, which is the ESA, which is really a trade association. It does do political lobbying, but for this purpose, in this context, it's really trying to be a trade association. It's trying to help uh, increase the goodwill and uh, essentially Q scores uh, of these companies, these publishers that make up its membership to, to help them get out there to be known to the public to get media coverage that they're looking for. It says the lobbying group says it hopes to create exclusive appointment-only activations for select attendees who, who will create buzz and FOMO. You always want to look out when major corporations or public relations firms are using internet terms and slangy terms like FOMO. It's designed to make you feel cool, like this is hip, this is edgy. In general, in my experience, corporations using such language are usually the antithesis of anything that's hip and cool and edgy. And so I always raise a red flag when you see those kinds of languages used in pitch decks like we're about to see. It says, however, ESA members shot down the idea of paying celebrities according to three slides labeled member decision points. Celebrities will be invited through an organized program instead. It also says the E3 schedule may be reconfigured with an industry-only day on Tuesday before opening the doors wide to ticketed members of the general public on Wednesday and Thursday. For those of you who aren't aware, E3 used to be a conference that only allowed industry members to attend. Now, as the years went on, there were a lot of uh, leaks in that particular wall. I believe GameStop employees, for instance, whether you were just at the cash register, could often get uh, tickets to E3. And that was how a lot of the, the media consumption kind of leaked out of the conference in previous years. As these people and the internet and social media grew to prominence, all of this stuff was able to come out regardless of whether or not you had a, a newspaper or a website that was strictly uh, based on covering the video game industry. E3 a couple of years back said, hey, we're going to allow fans to come in, but the media has quite often complained about that because it lowers their efficiency, it lowers their ability to cover all these various games and to have shorter lines and to be able to get their hands on these various games. Uh, And I think justifiably so. I think the concerns from the media are justified there uh, because really, if it's to have any purpose at all, it was in the past to have the purpose of allowing media coverage, and it appears the ESA is going away from that. It does say, as the article continues, that the ESA membership is not aligned with the lobbying group that E3 should be a consumer event. The lobbying group's publisher partners shot down an idea for a PlayStation experience like movie theater experience. However, there are a number of consumer-focused plans on the table. A proposed digital app and experience may help mitigate wait times. On paper, this reads like Disney's FastPass system used in its amusement parks. Users will register for a demo time window and come back later to avoid waiting for hours at a time for a single game. Now, it's worth noting, as we did at the top of this video, that in order to use a digital app of that purpose, you're probably going to need to have some login information. You're probably going to have to have some registration that goes through an electronic system, just like the same system that the ESA had all of the information leak from earlier this year and in prior years. And so if you're talking about as a proposal, you're going to have a new application that's going to be programmed from the ground up that's going to collect all this data from people. Please just insert it. We're going to give you demo times. If I'm the media, or even if I'm a customer, uh, a consumer of video games that has showed up at E3 for the fan event portion, I'm not thrilled about having to sign in to a new application that is owned and created uh, by the ESA. 
It also says the ESA does have plans to take advantage of the long demo wait times. The group has plans for what it calls cutainment to market to those in line. This two-pronged approach creates a rich opportunity for E3 exhibitors. Either they will have access to consumer data captured through the app or have a captive audience as people wait in line for demos. Uh, Cutainment not being a strange thing, for those of you familiar, as Mike points out here with Disney World and other theme parks, where you have various things that you can do in line. I think even Disney World has started to kind of take away from that, from having games and things that they build for lines and have entertainment there, due to the prevalence of cell phones. For the most part, people in line uh, are willing to stand in line and surf their social media, their Twitter, or whatever it is, and and chat uh, sporadically with those around them. And I think, in general, it maybe doesn't make that much sense to devote a lot of resources to this, but it is interesting to see the ESA try to deal with the fact that it's got this huge throng of people in these multi-hour lines doing nothing, and that that is, at bare minimum, an opportunity to continue to sell to folks if they are on the consumer side of things rather than the media side of things. The next slide that Mike brings up is another aspect of the deck proposes leveraging social consciousness to promote E3 in a series of slides called The Power of Social Good. The ESA suggests exploiting millennial and Generation Z propensity for giving back. By amplifying E3's social good brand, we can advance the industry's brand with consumers while storing positive chits for future use, the slide says. And this is the slide that primarily came to mind when I mentioned earlier that this is clearly not intended for consumer eyeballs because the way that this is is kind of uh, structured is indicative of how a corporation and of how a public relations firm thinks about these things. We talk about this a lot in virtual legality, but corporations have fiduciary responsibilities to do the best that they can for their shareholders. Similarly, a trade association like the ESA has a responsibility to do the best that it can for its membership. Or frankly, it ceases to exist as the members just pull all their funding and backing of the entity. And so when you see something like this, it's basically saying, hey, how can we increase goodwill? And an entity doesn't really have any belief system in uh, the Green New Deal or in recycling or in any of the other things that might come up on Twitter or on your social media feeds. So when you talk about a company, a corporation, even one that you like taking those steps, whether it's donating uh, to to alleviate poverty uh, or to do other things that are not uh, obviously connected to their mission, I think you should always kind of think of a, a slide somewhere existing like this in some boardroom. Uh, and it basically says, hey, we think we can sell more widgets. We think we can increase our goodwill. We think we can do something that is towards the mission of whatever it is that we're doing in the ESA's case of increasing publisher Q scores and goodwill by doing these things. We understand right now that the market, the people we're selling to care about X, Y, and Z. So we're going to advocate caring for X, Y, and Z. And we're going to turn E3 into something that's going to have a social advocacy uh, show on one of its stages or is going to have influencers come in and we're going to do charity streams from the floor of E3 or whatever else they're planning on doing because we think those market participants uh, like that kind of thing. And so they want to store those chits as they frame it for when the next negative story comes out. So that when there's another loot box workshop that the FTC holds or another government regulation recommended by the parliamentary subcommittees in the United Kingdom, and they want to say, hey, no, video games are a force for good, they can point to the stream that they did at E3 and say, hey, no, yes, we might have problems with loot boxes. There might be problems that you can otherwise identify government official, but we're overall a force for good. And I don't think they're wrong to have this approach 
But obviously, I understand how when you see it nakedly stated like this, it does certainly look bad. I would, uh, I would say, however, the ESA is not alone in this. When we're talking about corporations, when we're talking about entities, they have one mission, to further their membership, to further the interests of their shareholders, and everything separate from that is designed to meet that mission. So you should always kind of consider that there's some post somewhere in some boardroom that looks like that. The next piece that Mike highlights is with respect to creating paid media partnerships. It says, one curious note in the ESA's E3 2020 deck is a proposal to engage in new paid media partnerships. While this might be interpreted as a common advertising purchase, the ESA specifically calls out that it funded segments on Tech Impact, a show that the ESA says runs on CNBC, although the show website indicates it airs on Fox Business and Bloomberg Television. Now, I went and I did some digging on this uh, because I found that absolutely fascinating because one of the things Mike calls out here is he says they don't carry any disclosure or obvious notation that the content was a paid promotion by the lobbying group. So I had to go and take a look at this actual website, what this show is, what is Tech Impact? I've never heard of it. And this is the website that Mike links to. He actually links directly to the episodes page, which doesn't have any disclaimer on it at all. It's a somewhat low rent set of interviews uh, with various parties involved uh, with video gaming. Uh, you can see here Nintendo's Doug Bowser. You've got the ESA's new president. You've got some folks from 2K, from Bethesda. Um, and they're very genteel, right? They're softball questions. And that makes sense from what we just read in the pitch deck. This is paid for by the ESA. This is paid for by the publishers of video games. But as you can see on this website, which Mike originally linked to from his Game Daily Biz article, there's nothing. There's no disclaimer. There's nothing at the front of these videos. I don't want to play them for you right now. You can check them out in the link to this video or in the link from the Game Daily Biz article. But that doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't some kind of disclaimer that was on Fox or Bloomberg or CNBC, if that's where it aired, those can be separated from the actual content and be a kind of short insert piece that says the following is a paid, uh, you know, uh, advertising piece. However, they don't appear here. And the only place that I could find anything in respect of this was if you scroll to the very bottom of this page, and I've highlighted it here, you can see Tech Impact 2019, Merrim Entertainment, which is the producer, sponsored program. Now, we've talked in virtual legality a lot about Federal Trade Commission compliance, what it means to have to say when you're an advertisement, those kinds of things. And you can say sponsored content. You absolutely can. You can say sponsored program. It has to be apparent who's sponsoring you. It has to be apparent what you're talking about. Because what the Federal Trade Commission is interested in is making sure that you're not doing something that is deceptive advertising. So right now, you can look at what the content of Tech Impact is, and you can assume certain things about who's paying for it, but you don't know exactly who's paying for it. Is every interview paid by the individual publisher? It doesn't appear that way. Instead, they're paying for it through their trade association, and if it isn't attached to their videos, especially the videos that they're sharing on things like episodes, that becomes a problem because you're seeing these interviews, you're seeing these things that are designed to make you want to buy this company's products, and it's not clear that even if they worked through a trade association, they paid for this coverage. So while sponsored program here at the bottom is great, I don't think, and this isn't legal advice, this is just kind of uh, a qualitative uh, discussion of what I personally think would, would pass FTC muster. I don't think this is sufficient enough to notify folks about the fact that this program is sponsored by the interviewees that this person is interviewing. And I think they need to do a better job of that. Certainly, 
it's to the ESA's advantage to not have it be that obvious that this is in fact the case, that this is just a legitimate interviewer, a legitimate journalist with nearly 25 years of industry experience asking questions of Nintendo that happen to be softballs. And hey, it's great that this video content exists and that we're getting it placed on Fox Business and Bloomberg Television, etc. On those services, it might well be labeled as sponsored content better than it is here. But right now, the internet exists, this website exists, and I think there are issues with the fact that this is not properly labeled. And in fact, I saw this, I mentioned it to Mike on Twitter, and he added the following line to this article. He said, a small note at the bottom of the Tech Impact site says, sponsored program, but the disclosure is not included on the episode listing or disclosed in the video segments published on that page. Uh, and I agree with him. I, I think that there is an issue there uh, that they lack disclosure for what this thing actually is. He also references the data breach. He talks a little bit about his analysis of the pitch deck, which I highly recommend checking out. Go give him a click. Click on Game Daily Biz. They're doing these kinds of articles all the time. If you're interested in virtual legality, I highly recommend following them. They do a lot of good work. And then he finishes off with this little bit. He says, none of this, what ESA is proposing for E3, fixes the core problem. Publishers, ESA's members, don't need the LA Convention Center to reach media and influencers. As we've talked about in virtual legality, as we've talked about in this very video, these publishers are moving forward with figuring out how Nintendo Directs work, how Sony State of Plays work to meet consumers where they live, and they're getting the eyeballs they need with very little advance notice. So the question becomes, how much is it worth it to pay for these kinds of things? And I would expand that question. I've talked about it on previous episodes on this channel, but I do think the video game industry is in a space where you have to start considering whether or not you need things like the cost of living in California or in various other high cost locations. And certainly California passing the independent contractor bill that we talked about earlier in virtual legality is one of those areas where the publishers and the chief executive officers and the board of directors of these various companies are going to have to examine in the age of the internet, how much do you need to be localized in Hollywood? How much do you need to be localized in these high cost of living locations? And E3, the ESA, all of this is kind of part and parcel to the same question, which is, do we need these things? Do we need this? And I think the ESA is struggling with that. Which isn't to say that the E3, the new look E3, couldn't be exciting, couldn't be interesting to certain other people, uh, or, or even us, uh, as if it turns out to be great. If it turns out to be a real festival, a real celebration of everything that we love about the industry, it could be wonderful. That being said, it will certainly be different, and it seems unlikely that this is a direction that's really going to attract uh, the kind of media attention that E3 has traditionally received and that they want to receive in the future. Now, let's take a look at the actual pitch deck, which Game Daily Biz thankfully put up. This was what was leaked to them or that they otherwise found. And you can read it for yourself. You don't have to listen to Mike Futter's analysis. You don't have to just read that article, although I highly recommend that you do. You can actually look and see what the presentation said. So we're just going to look at a bit of this. I'm going to link this in the description of the video. It says, E3 was a B2B retail event, business to business, but no longer. We listened, heard, and evolved. E3's vision, we will be a fan, media, and influencer festival. It will mark both the beginning of the news and announcement cycle for the year and be a convening point for the biggest fans, top video game companies, leading news outlets and analysts, analysts, and social media influencers, celebrities, and athletes. So, you know, 
if you see virtual legality booth at the next E3, I suppose that's something. Uh, but right now, that's completely different from what E3 has always been. That is designed to be something that it shines a spotlight on the game industry as a kind of party rather than, than on solely a news sharing event. It says, we're planning to pivot to an event focused on core gamers, online influencers, celebrities, and media with an emphasis on high-flow game pavilions, new programming, and branded curated experiences centered on a theme with a new design show floor. And they anticipate incredible engagement, increased energy. They anticipate enhanced press coverage from mainstream outlets. Now, that's an open question. Right now, what they're talking about is something that's going to deliver less newsworthy items in exchange for what I would describe as a spectacle, right? They want to show, again, kind of going back to some of their roots and their kind of midsection of E3's history of being this kind of Las Vegas uh, Cirque du Soleil show uh, and having that spectacle be something that is worthwhile of video attention, worthwhile of having somebody be sent to cover but to reduce the overall announcement impact of various things that are going on at the show. They're looking to do that with increased online buzz, direct marketing to fans, as we talked about making it a fan event, uh, convenience, connections with VIPs, uh, goodwill, and sustained attendee presence throughout all of E3 days. That's the last bullet that's important because right now we're in a kind of state of flux with E3. They're having publishers back out of the thing. They're having publishers not have the boosts, not having the spend that they used to have in respect of actually funding and backing up E3. That's part and parcel to why this deck exists at all. They're losing money and they need to find something that's more attractive to publishers. They need to find something that only they can put together that can't be done with a Nintendo Direct, with a Sony State of Play. Is this that? I have my doubts, but it certainly makes sense for E3 to try to re-envision itself when the publishers are otherwise finding all of this traction without this major press conference event. And then they talk a little bit about what Mike talked about, having uh, new exhibition stages, having these experiences and these flow-throughs. They, they call them never-before-seen experiences. They call them exclusive VIP events. Uh, they're designed to try to create a, a, a Disney World, a theme park, an amusement park uh, in the West Hall and have you be excited to go there to do things that you can't otherwise do on the internet, that you can't otherwise perceive uh, through a press conference. And I've talked a little bit about that before, how I love Sony, I love PlayStation, but at the end of the day, their shows have become what amounts to YouTube videos shown in a row. And that's not terribly useful to me. We can all joke about the awkwardness of developers kind of trying to demo their games and whether or not there's going to be Wi-Fi interference or whether they're doing fake demos or E3 speak, as we often hear, which is the dialogue that Ubisoft likes to put in to their videos and gameplay demonstrations, which are never, ever, ever heard like that when you're actually playing the game. We can comment on those. We can laugh at them. But they at least showed something. There was something about that that was distinct from just going on the publisher's YouTube channel and watching their latest trailer. And I think E3's gotten away from that. And this is a good step in terms of, hey, we need to do something. I only question whether or not this is the right something. They talk about cutainment with enabling marketing to attendees in line. As I said, sell to customers while they're in line. And other things that Mike discusses here. I don't think there's a lot else to cover in this particular pitch deck that we didn't cover from discussing the Game Daily Biz article. We see here the power of social good slides that Mike described and some of the language uh, that is, you know, absolutely understandably 
offensive uh, to be critical of social good and whether or not it's legitimate and how this corporation is going to use it to gather chits, etc., etc. I can certainly understand why the reactions to that kind of concept are what they are. Again, I would remind folks that this is how corporations operate. This is how they're designed to operate. And you should really take that into consideration with any corporation that proclaims doing whatever it's doing for a charitable end or for a social good end, uh, that they're really not built for that. And they're always designed to build goodwill up for their brand and for the products uh, or services uh, that they're selling. Uh, And so that's E3. Uh, So at the end of the day, E3 is going to change. E3 was really always going to change, not only because of the data breach, not only because the media was upset at the ESA for losing all their information uh, publicly and potentially having various media members exposed to docs risks and things like that. And you can catch that video on our virtual legality channel, but also because of the existence and the prevalence of the directs of the world. So ESA, the E3 concept absolutely had to change. I think embracing the age of the influencer, the kind of celebrity marketing stuff, really how I envision it as kind of the old days of Spike TV and its treatment of video games. I very much hope it doesn't come to that. I think the industry in general in the past has had a uh, desire to be seen as hip and edgy and cool and new and has gone too far, uh, whether that's with you know Mountain Dew and Doritos ads sprinkled throughout uh, cheerleading competitions in the middle of announcing the next Call of Duty all lit in green on Spike TV or other kind of erstwhile initiatives that were designed to get back at the core of what people and what consumers want and what the ESA thinks they want. I think that something like what they've described in E3 could work. I question whether they're the organization to do that, to put that together. Uh, And I think I would rather personally see behind the scenes educational materials. I would rather see an E3 with a ton of panels. If you're going to make it a fan event, I want to see interviews. I want it to be a little bit more like GDC. Maybe not as technical. I mean, man, those graphics guys can really talk about math. But with those kinds of fan-facing events, having a conversation with a lot more people, having open panel questions, maybe a little bit more focused on things like the E3 Coliseum rather than having the latest Twitch star playing Fortnite in the corner and you can walk by him while he plays. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't think the ESA knows what it's going to look like. I don't think anybody that's listening to this episode necessarily knows what it's going to look like. It could be an absolute abject failure, but don't necessarily think that it will be solely because it's new. It could be a success. ESA, the E3 concept needed to change, and this is the direction they've decided to go. I'm not thrilled with it. I'm not sure that it'll work, but something needed to happen, and I'll be interested to see what that looks like at the end of the day. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you like this episode, please like, please subscribe. We're talking about these kinds of things all the time. We actually talked about a very interesting Reddit thread yesterday about a service called PlayOnd, which apparently has been buying up applications on the Apple App Store only to put them behind paywalls and otherwise cut off access for folks that had purchased those games already. That's a very interesting story. What the Apple EULA allows, what its terms and conditions and services allows is an interesting part of that service. That's what we're talking about on virtual legality. Otherwise, if you caught this video on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you caught this listening to it on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.